0: hello this is pixelated playgrounds a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games i'm brian skershaw i'm josh Kalecki. and today we're talking about moondrop a roguelike farming sim released into steam early access in august of 2022 Today's episode is a bit different, since we are happy to invite the primary developer, Moonroof Studio's own, Josh Galecki, onto the show. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Josh.
1: (laughs) Thanks, it's great to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller.
0: (laughs) So yeah, obviously this is going to be a bit of an atypical episode. as Some of you have gleaned through context clues and avid listening of our podcast. Uh, Thank you, if that does describe you. Josh (laughs) has been developing a game. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about that, the development process, and, um, you know, any other interesting questions that might come up. If you happen to think of one that we don't cover here, feel free to write us in and we will, um, get back to you. Maybe we'll even, uh, bundle those up and, and talk about them in another cast or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah. So Josh, you developed a game, but it's not your first one.
1: No, no, um. This is the second commercially released game I had. The first one being a, um, a small game called Dwarven Depths released for the Xbox Live Indie Games platform back in 2011. So I'm trying to pace myself, you know, putting the game out every decade, not trying to strain myself too much here. <laughs> but it was a good journey. It was a good game putting out. My favorite review, I think, came from Kotako. Or Kotaku, I'm never sure how to pronounce that, um, but they described it as uh, four drunk Dig Dug players brawling in a dirty alleyway, which I thought was a <laughs> you know captured the essence of what I was going for.
0: You know, having played that, it pretty much rings true to me. Um, but yeah, it, I thought it was interesting because you know, um, you know, we'll we'll jump to Moondrop uh, very soon, I promise. But um, I thought it was interesting that for your first development outing commercially um from a gaming perspective you had a game complete with (laughs) netcode probably not something most people do
1: (laughs) no all all cards on the table here i tried to add netcode to it and it broke me um and that's when (laughs) i learned the importance of version control um I don't know. There was a lot. There's a lot of black magic that goes on with Netcode, and uh, there were a lot of weird bugs that were coming up from the predictive logic. I would try to throw um, when these the uh, clients are the client server architecture was trying to figure out who was doing what and when.
0: Oh yeah, maybe that was a misremembrance of my part. So it was local local uh, multiplayer, but then you were trying to to patch in. Um... Um, online and, and that was, as you said, maybe that's where that, that project came to its end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it was beyond my capabilities at the time.
0: I mean, you were a college student, so that, uh... <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty obvious why we thought this was a good idea. It, it pretty much comes right into our, our point of view. You know, we love indie games here at Pixelated Playgrounds. Um, Josh, obviously an indie developer. Last time I checked, Josh, you don't have a publishing deal, right? <laughs> I do not, no.
1: I uh, thought about it for a little bit, but decided to go solo publishing.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, I think from my perspective, you know, having come along with you on this journey as a um, uh, semi-frequent playtester or idea bouncer off of her, um, I thought it would be fun to to get a little bit more in depth, you know, and and I think we'll probably try and split this podcast down the middle, um, you know, contrary to our uh, normal approach by talking a bit about the game and a bit about the the process of developing it, since you have that very specific insight. Yeah,
1: that sounds good to me.
0: Sounds like fun. So um, I guess maybe we could start off by uh, laying out what Moondrop is. Uh, I mentioned up top, this is a, a rogue light farming simulation where you are a farmer on a shape-shifting mountain um, it has a lot of different sort of goals and, and uh, some slight meta progression involved as well but basically you're trying to reach the top of the mountain before the vanishing mists swallow your farm and force you to retreat back to the bottom
1: mm-hmm Yeah, and like you mentioned, there's a little meta progression in there. There's an abandoned village that you can tote your resources back to, all your spare logs and rocks and stones and all that. Uh, You can bring that back there and rebuild the village, give yourself a few more buffs for the next run, and hopefully make it a little bit farther.
0: Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting twist. You know, I, I, I know that in early versions that I had played, you know, we... When you were starting to develop uh, some of the key mechanics around the farming and the um, forays into the mountain sort of dungeon-esque exploration portion of the game uh, this didn't exist as i understood it was a pretty late ad yeah
1: yeah it was originally designed to be a straight-up roguelike game if you are familiar with the roguelike versus roguelike or sorry roguelite distinction uh the roguelite with a t uh, always features some sort of meta progression. You know, you are more powerful from run to run. Uh, rogue Legacy is kind of the standard bearer, I feel, of this type of gameplay. Whereas for a rogue like, and, you know, my own purest definition, um, each run you start no different than any other run.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the. Um... Hades versus Broke distinction. If you're looking for games we've covered, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the interesting thing to me about what you you did is how many mechanics that were sort of worked in over the course of development here. Like I remember the very earliest portion where you were basically just trying to find a way to um, make sure that farming uh, on a short time period. Was something that could be sufficiently randomized and interesting to, to yes, you know, power roguelike. And, and the solution you came up with with this sort of planting puzzle mechanic where adjacency bonuses sort of cause different plants to have synergies with other plants was really interesting. Uh, I wondered, like, how did you come up with that and, and what sort of made you uh, continue to evolve that particular thing?
1: So the seeds of this idea were there from the very beginning. Um, Moondrop started off as Moondrop Mountain, um, two years ago, nearly now. I'm sure by the time this game is released, at, uh, or this podcast is released, it'll be two years. Um, but the idea was kind of doing a seven-day roguelike challenge where you get in the bones of a roguelike game in seven days. It's not complete, but it's, you know, a fun thing. So I thought I'd mash up the farm sim genre with the roguelike genre. Uh, just to see what kind of fertile ground I could be plowing with that butts.
0: Wow! <laughs> <laughs> All right, you, you, you had, uh, early seed sown plowing. Uh, geez, you're how many puns are we gonna get in this? Uh, and how long have you been thinking of those?
1: <laughs> I think that's that's it for my list of puns today. But you never know what might crop up.
0: Oh! Oh my God! <laughs> All right.
1: Okay. So um, the planting was. Uh, very, It was um, probably the earliest idea I had with this game, uh, because with roguelikes, you start over again and again and again. Roguelites, you do too, you know, same same difference here. Um, mm-hmm. But in order to make that fun from the player's perspective, you need to randomize things. That's why procedural generation is so popular in uh, the roguelite or like space. Um, and the thing I figured out with, or the idea I had for the plants, you know, all the crops you're growing is that they would provide bonuses or penalties to their neighbors based on this type of, um, elemental system. Instead of like earth, wind, fire, and water, I have sunny, shady, dry, and damp. Um, but same kind of thing. Some elements cancel each other out and some, um benefit each other Uh, so if you uh, each plant each crop would have arrows going out to it with one of these elemental types and these arrows would help out nearby plants or hurt them depending on how you place them so there's a little bit of a puzzle aspect to how you plant in Moondrop and that you need to arrange your plants in order to make best use of what plants you do have what seeds you randomly draw
0: yeah, I think the the randomization aspect of this was key as you said just to one power the the roguelike element of the game that you were going for, but two to keep it um to keep it interesting and to keep the player, you know, thinking on their feet and having it different every time. Um one thing that I remember about this was initially being confused as as I was playtesting on the UI and in the in the state it's in now, um you know, here in uh, almost October of 2022. Um it's much more readable. Like, uh, one, you can easily see how things are going to affect each other. Uh, when you place them, you have the ability to sort of strategize how your placement goes. So it seems to me that you've ramped up the, the ability to strategize and and highlighted that puzzling aspect. But two, um, during the early morning, uh, you know, the, the wake up and you see the results of your placements and what you've done with your, your crops, uh, the way that it sort of showcases what's affecting what and how they are growing, uh, to me, is much more readable than it started off. Um, talk about that journey and sort of what what got you there.
1: The UI, um, the explaining of, of how the mechanic works, has always been a big issue. Because um, I came up with this idea at the beginning, but it all of I considered a pretty original idea. It's possible. Yeah, let's it's be been frank. It's before. not simple. No, it's not simple, um, but it's also, you know, it. the downside of being original is that players don't necessarily realize how they got to interact with this. Like, um, this isn't necessarily something like you have a platformer and you're adding a grappling hook. Like, this is a very different way of playing a farming game than most people are used to and I realized early on that um, improving the UI for this would be a key it's gone through iteration after iteration uh, playtest after playtest and those playtests have been invaluable in learning where my assumptions don't carry over or are not communicated to the player
0: Yeah. It's interesting because you could have chosen a mechanic, uh, something like, like say a match three where like plants planted three in a row would merge in on each other or something like that. And it would have been probably, uh, simpler, but also wrote, right? Like people have seen that before. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think this was a much, as you said, more original idea. And I think a lot of people appreciate that, you know, having looked at reviews and how it's received and, and in the discord that you have for the game. Um, so all in all, I, uh, I applaud that, and, and as you said, the tutorialization has come a long way. Um, um, obviously not perfect. I'm sure you still get questions about it, but hey, you know, uh, it's a journey. <laughs> it
1: is a journey. It is a journey. I'll say um, one thing that's changed too, not just the UI, but the mechanics z- themselves have changed. When I realized that something wasn't working the way I wanted it to. Um, for example, in an er- earlier builds of the game, um, the plant adjacency like what plants were next to which ones it was like plus or minus 50 percent in the value of the plant when it was harvested it still grew every day but I felt that wasn't emphasizing the plant placement enough like you didn't have to care as much about what went where um as much as I wanted players to care about that so I changed that from affecting the value of the harvested plant to being required for the plant growth. So if you have a sunny plant, it needs sunny arrows in order to grow at all. Otherwise, it just sits there as a seed until it gets some friends around it.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So sort of changing uh, the, the entire, I guess, requirement system for that. Like you can't just sort of, you can't not interact with the puzzle aspect, right? You have to uh, be engaging with that in order to have farming be a source of income for you. And I guess it's worth sort of backing up a bit about the mechanics in this game. Um, You know, you do have, you you are still, you know, per the probably uh, more standard farming sim trope, growing these crops in order to sell them, in order to get money, gold, AKA, uh, which you can then use alongside resources to upgrade your tools, uh, get additional abilities uh, and and, uh, inventory items that will augment your, uh, your farmer. And... Uh, to that end, like there is uh, not only the the in-game progression, but uh, on the farm, but also on uh, say going up to the dungeon, which is another aspect of this game entirely separate from the farm. Um, hmm. Talk about sort of like how what made you decide to sort of have this whole second phase of the game, right? Because the farm is one thing, but we have we have a mountain too.
1: I think this was an original idea back. When I was making this as a roguelike, it's like, okay, it's a roguelike. It's got to have some sort of procedural generated dungeon or something like that in order to explore um, and discover things and figure, figure things out. Um, and this is another thing that has kind of changed in the evolution of Moondrop from its prototype to its current status. Uh, before it was kind of an optional thing you could go and visit when you were done on the farm for the day but i was finding that people were spending they were spending more time on the farm trying to clear out you know a tree that was 200 yards away from where their house was just cuz hey got to get that wood why not mm-hmm. uh, rather than uh, doing as much exploring as i wanted to so i went and made the de- decision to make this dungeon this uh, mountain trail a completely separate time period. So I think the current game has you farming for three days and then you spend a day on the mountain. Then you farm for three days and you spend a day on the mountain. So you never have to worry about that time pressure to go back to the farm. Um, and the mountain is a very interesting thing too because one of my design goals for Moondrop was to make it a non-violent game. I mean even farming games like Stardew uh, which was a huge inspiration for this game. But uh, Stardew, you have the minds where you fight things, you know, and that's a very easy to explain mechanic to the player. You give them a sword and a shield, you show them a wolf. They're not going to try to tame the wolf in 99% <laughs> of games, you know. Um, they know what to do. And it can be an exciting feedback or feedback loop um, where you get better gear, you can fight better monsters, Uh, It gives you a thing to do and a progression kind of system. Making the roguelike dungeon be non-violent and be based around exploration and discoverability, that was probably one of the most fun challenges of the game, trying to make a satisfying dungeon where you didn't fight anything.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because there are two things I recognized about exploring the mountain. One is it's resource rich. So you're going up there, you're going to come back with a huge haul of uh, upgrade materials that you can then use to supplement your ability to farm and can, you know uh, keep the flywheel going in terms of progression. But two, as you mentioned, there are also the puzzle aspects here. Uh, where you can go up and there's a fishing puzzle and the maze puzzle with the crops. And, you know, there's a variety of different items or a different sort of randomly generated things that you can find up there that uh, contribute to sort of the, the overall progression of reaching the mountain's peak uh, being the overall uh, sort of meta goal of the game run over run. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, yeah, the there are procedurally generated puzzles in the game. Um, and these are some kind of classic puzzles in some ways, like there's the uh, lantern puzzle, I call it, where you click a button and like one torch goes out and the neighboring torches go on or they toggle their state. Um, there's the fishing puzzle, as you mentioned, there's a hide and seek puzzle that... Um, And all of these things are presented to the player without any instructions on what to do. Some of them take a little more figuring out what needs to be done in order to quote-unquote solve the puzzle, or even if there is a puzzle to solve. And that kind of like joy of discovery was, I think, the thing I was trying to do for or I was trying to replace the joy of victory in a typical like combat-oriented dungeon sort of thing. Yeah, think
0: of it as, like, a boss to overcome at the end of the, the one corridor of the dungeon.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that's good. And, you know, honestly, like, that's the kind of thing that, like, would keep people coming back.
1: And then you mentioned it's a very resource-rich area, too. That was uh, very intentional. Uh, two major things. First, you only find uh, alchemical ingredients. Only uh, You only find uh, potion herbs on the mountain. And another thing is um, there is a... A mist that's everywhere in the game. Um, your farm has little street lights that keep it at bay, and you get a little bit of uh, lantern juice each day, and that uh, that lets you dispel some of the mist around your farm. Um, but when you go to the trail, then you get a full lantern, which means you can explore a lot and reveal a lot of resources.
0: Yeah, I, I you touched on uh, something that I definitely want to bring up, which is alchemy. Which, um, t- to my mind, is is definitely sort of an interesting and I feel like probably undersung mechanic. Like, I'd imagine if you're um, deep in the meta of, of Moondrop, you're probably <laughs> uh, fully alchemy-pilled. But for me, I think, uh, one, it was uh very interesting but also uh, kind of hilarious it, it harkened back to me of like the traditional roguelikes where you make a potion you have no idea what it does and then uh, one of the potions I made turned me into a sheep so um <laughs> uh, lovely moments of like sort of hilarity and serendipity coming from the alchemy system in this game that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm.
1: Although the alchemy system didn't get implemented for quite a while, it was a goal from the beginning uh, where you have a kind of randomized potion system. Uh, roguelikes have a very deep tradition of you found a potion, you don't know what it does. You sip it and you heal back to full health or you, you're, you're turned into a sheep or something hilarious like that.
0: Or you explode? Or you explode? <laughs> yes, always. I mean, oh, uh, it's good. Not in this there. game, of course. You know, it's non-violent. But um. <laughs>
1: there is an explosion potion in this game.
0: But well, I know there's explosions, but I didn't know you could <laughs> have a potion that exploded you. That's interesting.
1: But one of the um, other roguelike ish goals that I try to incorporate for this game is that every potion is useful. Um, the explosion potion, it—you know—you gotta dodge the boom when the boom comes but also that can clear out trees and rocks very quickly uh the sheep potion has several uses that are not immediately obvious with it and that might be the thing you discover accidentally during the game and that's one of the feelings i'm going for is that accidental discovery like oh i see how that fits in now
0: For what it's worth, every run that I have and every iteration on my farm and village has led me to find something that I haven't seen before. And, you know, I haven't played tons and tons of of your game, despite, you know, all of the various versions of it. Um, You know, I think that probably has contributed me to being more towards the early end of the uh, exploration curve than anything. But I, I can't say that, you know, from a player's perspective, I do often feel surprised by what I'm seeing. The, the, sh- the sheep um, situation is definitely fun, but I remember sort of like chasing down a fox on the mountain and that contributing to lighting a lantern, which I'm still not quite sure what that's all about. But um, maybe, I don't know, either talk about that or don't, depending on if you want to spoil some, some meta progression stuff for your game or not. I'll, I'll leave that to you.
1: <laughs> uh, are you referring to the columns of uh, land with the fire and everything? Yes, yeah, yes, th- yes. And that one, you're, you know, spoiler alert for the next 10 seconds, but you're meant to um, turn all of the lanterns on and figure out the right combination to do it. I've gone Mm -hmm. through and mathematically proved that every initial condition can be solved. So don't worry about getting stuck with a bad, uh, bad draw on the uh, starting things there. But uh, that is um, one of the One of the proc gen puzzles you get, um, on each trail visit, there are three puzzles, and if you solve two of them, you beat the trail level. Mm -hmm. And once you beat four trail levels, then you beat the game.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the top of the the mountain, so to speak. That's interesting. Um, I I don't want to keep going down this path because I want to have people explore for themselves, but I have some questions that I might ask you offline. Um, um, so I guess that maybe it leads me to something that we, we touched on earlier, but, uh, the town, um, we talked about the sort of meta progression aspect and the things that, you know, carting your, your resources left over at the end of your 10 day run down, uh, to give yourself a leg up the next time. And I think it's really one nice how this presents itself, but two, it's interesting the upgrades that you're able to give yourself because, Mm -hmm. um, I, one, I can tell your uh, abilities with pixel art have increased over the, the course of your development of this game because this, <laughs> this, this town looks really great. Uh, I really mm-hmm. like the way it looks. It's really cool and pastoral and the way it sort of goes from dilapidated to, you know, uh, full featured is, is lovely. But I also really like the the things you're upgrading, you know, the teacher to allow you to retain perks, which we need to talk about still the blacksmith to allow you to start with better tools, the houses to give you more seeds, uh, you know, basically additional card draws, if you will, for your puzzle farming system. Um, I think it's really well integrated. Like, it, it's nicely um, sort of all put together.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the, um, the town was not an original edition. Like I mentioned before, this game, I thought of it as a roguelike where every run would be from scratch. The same you know, same starting conditions no matter what you're doing. Um, and the town got added in later on. And as I played the game more and kind of saw it taking shape, going from that formless, like the the block of marble or whatever, block of stone in front <laughs> of me, into uh, seeing where the gameplay lines lay. Um, I saw, interestingly enough, that there's a lot of farming in the game but the ultimate objective of the game is not to have the best farm the ultimate objective is to reach the top of the mountain which means to get through all of the trails so the farming is really about setting you up for the mountain um being able to clear debris away efficiently enough without losing too much energy time or lantern juice
0: um Are we really just calling it lantern juice? I guess it's lantern power, but
1: uh, that's what it says in the code. But I've called it juice a couple of times now. Yeah, we can. It is the moonlight lantern. We we can call that. We can call it that. That's fine. Um, There you go. (laughs) So the village upgrades are all very much aimed at expanding, making you more powerful in the sense you senses you need to advance in the game. Like you can get more seeds. Each time you get to seeds, which gets you more money, and you need a lot of money by the end of the game to get to the next trail. The trail costs money to go to each time. Uh, you can upgrade your starting tools from stone to iron to gold, which means they clear things out faster. You get the perks, as you say. Or uh, the fourth upgrade option right now is to... Um, there's a Moonlight Forge, where you can get more streetlights to place and expand the available area for farming. Um, and which lets you grow more things too. Uh,
0: you also mentioned, um, you know, making sure that you're able to continue to progress. And obviously what that means is like getting more efficient about what you're able to do on your farm during the day. Um, in a typical sort of, um, farming sim fashion, you do have a fatigue meter in this game. Uh, something we didn't mention to uh, this point yet, but I think is super key because this is also something I remember from early builds, um, working through with you was like, how to make sure the player realizes that they are um, running out of energy or running out of time because there's two different ways a day can end, right? Uh, Or three, I guess. One, you run out of energy. Two, you run out of time. Or three, you've successfully managed both of those things and get back to bed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, yeah, I remember uh, being uh, a little flabbergasted by this and it might just be my inattentiveness, but I know eventually the UI uh, definitely was able to communicate this to me much better, so... I don't know uh, if you have anything that you did that that made that happen. But if you do, I'd love to know it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All playtesting. If there's any aspiring or actual game devs out there, uh, playtest, playtest, playtest. You have a thousand assumptions about how things are supposed to work. And you show them to anybody else and you learn quickly which assumptions you've communicated clearly and which ones you need to communicate more clearly. Um, And uh, I remember seeing some playtests with you, Brian, but you were certainly not the only one who was caught off guard by the day ending. Um, Because I just assumed that people would look at their energy meter. Because, you know, I knew that energy was important. And you'd, uh, if you don't make it back home in time, you have less energy the next day. But You know, players are not focused on the UI unless you do little nudges to help them focus on it. Uh, So, after playing uh, with Brian and others, um, I added things where, like, the energy meter starts to flash. Um, Little numbers pop up letting you know, oh, you're low on energy here. Uh, The player sprite starts to flash, turn red, um, shake a little bit. Uh, There's a lot of different things you do. And this is one of the things that game developers call juice or game Mm. feel feel. And this is a huge thing to add to a game, a very easy thing to miss, but um, the art of juice and not in the, you know, lantern sense, but in game gameplay sense, but juice (laughs) is giving like excessive and enjoyable amounts of feedback for based on player input there. And it's the juice that shakes the screen when there's an explosion. Um, it's the juice that flashes the player sprite or uh, makes the items grow and scale and shrink as they pop up out of the... You know, the wood pops up out of the tree or the stone out of the rock or something like that. And it's not something that gets noticed very much um Especially, I think, by normal players. It's something that gets felt and understood more than noticed. Um, But a very good demonstration of juice is if you ever play any of the uh, Flambeer games, the uh, Dutch developer, they are kind of juice masters over there. Uh, (laughs) You shoot a gun and it's like...
0: They make great games over at Flambeer.
1: And their juice is definitely part of the Flambeer style, but it's a uh, it's a skill you want to work on as a game developer and not an obvious one that you need to work on it.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I mean it, it's totally true like it's those little touches that like um, I'm thinking about like um, another way that this was done like how Stardew did um, uh, showing the player that their character is becoming fatigued. It was um, you know the character if you're say chop Chop, chop! All of a sudden, you would see your character like sway for a little bit, and there would be a long pause before they chopped again. And that was like, oh, okay, something's changed here. Um, mm-hmm. And or um, they they probably had a bit easier time on the day-night cycle because they had um, the luxury of being able to have multiple times of day, you know, uh, tinting, shading, darkening the uh, the environment, a whole different you know palette over the course of a day, changing to night, a um, little bit different than maybe a Um, a one person uh, indie studio such as yourself but um, Hmm.
1: I mean Stardew was a one man gig too but it was four years in development so I still got two more to go
0: (laughs) (laughs) hey speaking of that, I wanted to talk a bit about the art because, um, you know, I remember the initial uh, web version of this that you did, <laughs> um, and the, the, the beginning art compared to where it ended up. Obviously, you know, everything starts off in in sort of developer art format, and, and watching it evolve was really interesting. But um, clearly, I think this was a skill that you also honed throughout this project, was your your pixel art skills, yeah?
1: Absolutely. Uh, something I've been working on, um, well, working on for years now, and there's a lot of different areas of art within a game, too. Like, there's a sprite art, there's the background kind of art, there's um, making good key art, like the capsule for the game. Um, although, I only did one of the capsules. I did hire, I did contract out um, some of the other capsule work. Um, but definitely something I've been working on. Um, and I think... The art I had at the beginning was great for what it started off as. Remember, this started off as a seven-day roguelike challenge where it's like, you got seven days to make a game, so how much time are you going to spend on the artwork? The answer is none. No, I I did spend a little bit of time on the artwork, especially the crops. I used a tool to help generate interesting-looking sprites uh, for the initial crops, but the art style was very different at the beginning, very um, much more low res low detail sort of stuff and it it was good for what it was as a prototype but i think you know i when i first made this game i planned for it to be the seven day roguelike that i just you know i i made that and i moved on to something else but i liked the idea i had so i kept developing that because i i didn't get all those ideas i had at the beginning um implemented
0: um it's gonna i was gonna say I, I remember you that the fact that you were sticking with this one after you know i, I pl- i've played a bunch of prototypes of yours you know cards on the table um and you know the, the fact that one you were sticking with this one signaled to me that you saw something in it that deserved to be expounded upon and, and i i agreed like this is a um, a cool idea and clearly it's turned into an, a very interesting project at least from my perspective and it, and it seems like others as well so um yeah, I think that's that's pretty cool that y- you know you can just sort of have an inkling and, and use something like a game jam to you know force yourself into exploring an idea enough to know whether you want to take the next step with it.
1: <laughs> very much so, very much so. It did get to the point eventually where spending enough time in it that I thought this art was good for the first week I worked on it. It was great back then, but uh, for <laughs> how developed the game is now. Um, if I'm planning to commercially release this, the art would be a definite, definite uh, stumbling block for a lot of uh, people, because, you know, it's less attractive when your main character is like 9 by 12 pixels. You can't fit a whole <laughs> lot of detail in that. Um, so we, uh, I, I did go through and redo all of the artwork of the game, the, the character of the character animations the crops the sprites the backgrounds the ui i'm not a huge fan of programming ui but it needs to be done uh there there are people (laughs) who are good at uis and i have a lot of respect for them but um it definitely adds to the theming of the game and the kind of feel of it and cheap ui definitely stands out so that's a worthwhile place to put in resources
0: It's something that always stands out to me about someone like Zach Gage's games, uh, you know, prolific iOS developer um, or developer and and designer. Um, It feels like the UI on those games are always just immaculate and so easy to parse. And it's like a sixth sense for making sure that everything is just immediately readable. And that's very enviable, like just in general, like if any idea that you have could just be immediately readable to your audience, like, boy, what a blessing that would be in any discipline. (laughs) (laughs)
1: The funny thing is, in my day job, um, I'm with a biomedical startup, and I feel I all the, this game dev experience I have is so useful over there because I'm so used to seeing things from the user's perspective or going out and talking to the users and seeing things through their eyes instead of what I might call the, um, the engineering eyes, where you're like, hey, here's a... Um, here's a program and the UI is 52 different buttons. That's great. I can configure it exactly how I want it to be. Whereas it's not, you know, showing you where the hierarchy is, showing you what the important information is. Very transferable skills from my game dev hobby to my professional work as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like, obviously very important for the final outcome. Speaking of the final outcome, I noticed that as this game neared its its early access release, one of the things that you added was uh, some writing. You know, uh, basically a setup, a plot. Um, this wasn't present in in the earlier builds that I played, but I thought it was really nice to sort of put a bit of context around what you're doing. Um, tell me a little bit about like how that came to be. If if you feel like, um, uh, from from my mind, the fact that it is pretty sparse and uh, few and far between is a feature, rather than just signaling that it is, um, you know, still still in development. But let me know what you think about that. I think this goes back
1: to a sort of tension that the game had in earlier builds, um, and this was something that was pointed out to me by other uh, game developers who were playtesting, um, other players who were playtesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people helped me realize this. Um, but they saw a like they heard the concept behind Moondrop, a rogue light farming sim mashup, and they got confused by it. They couldn't imagine how it would play.
0: <laughs> Which is fair. fair. It's, it sounds confusing,
1: <laughs> but uh, you know, diving into this, I think the issue wasn't between like a rogue and a farming sim, but rather between the permadeath part of roguelikes and farming sims. Because if you think about uh, farming sims, they are about building up. You're getting an engine going, you are starting with your farm from, you know, it's on a wasteland, whatever, and you have that million dollar cow milking machine later on, and it's that pleasure of building up the small things. Um, whereas roguelikes, specifically through the permadeath, is about tearing it down and starting from the beginning.
0: Um, I would say one other thing that people often associate with these sort of um, with farming sims is the um, life sim aspect of it, right? Like, could you imagine Stardew Valley without the town aspect, right? Like, increasing those relationships, building up rapport. And to be fair, that's not entirely present in. Are not remotely present in um, Moondrop, but I think that's nope. by design. No
1: NPCs <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: and and you know, like this is an interesting an interesting thing about this game um, is it's sort of detaching one part of what a farming sim normally has in it and attaching a different part in its place, being the roguelike aspect. Um, it's sort of like a chimera. I, and I think it's, uh, it's interesting for that, for that, you know, like, um, sometimes like taking one aspect of a genre you love and, and mashing it up with another is a way to, um, find something, something cool. I mean, there's another, uh, version of this, which is, uh, where you take the roguelike and mash it up with the life sim aspect, and then you get Hades, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, um, And, you know, obviously Supergiant is a a very different studio than Moonroof, but but I think you know what I'm getting at here.
1: No, for sure. There's uh, genre expectations and that fans of that genre um, are going to be looking at those expectations. Like um, when you're marketing a cross-genre game, you might think, oh, this is fantastic. My audience is players of X genre plus players of Y genre. Um, <laughs> but that's not necessarily the case, you know? Like, it turns out that for farming sims, that building up of the, the farm you have and the NPC relationships, um, that is a huge part of why they enjoy the genre. And it's not necessarily the verbs of planting things in the ground um and this was a big thing for me realizing that the game needed to be positioned as more of a roguelite rather than a farming sim because i mean roguelite players they're more used to weird genre mashups like ftl or Splunky, um right and they're used to starting over again and again uh in order to get to something like um even right now with a trailer I put out and the different uh, kind of marketing materials, you don't, I, I don't, I don't try to emphasize that you die a lot. So to quote unquote, like you have to restart. That doesn't sound fun. Who wants to restart anything? Um, rather, mm-hmm. I'm emphasizing like that you're learning and that you're discovering new things and that the game offers enough depth that it is fun to restart. Like, um, I mean, take a look at Hades. It's, this game is not Hades by any stretch of the imagination, but Hades does it <laughs> great. Their trailer is not you dying over and over and over again, uh, because that's not the fun part of the game. The fun part is the combat and the... the powers. Um, yeah. ...progressing through it, yeah. Uh, so it's easy to look at farm sim roguelite and think starting over, starting over, starting over, but it's on me as the developer to as a designer to sh- to make the game fun to replay over and over again, and as a marketer to explain why it's fun to replay over and over again. So to go back to your question about the narrative, um, this was some really good advice I got from the Boston indie game scene. Um, I was a traveled nurse there for a summer, and the I've stuck with the scene since then. Um, but it was to create a narrative out of everything that was happening because a narrative is a lot easier to grasp like we had this mist that or we had this restart that was happening um and we had we needed a reason to explain that so that's where i came up with the whole shape shifting mountain idea where the mist comes down um you have to ward it off it's like a kind of enemy to fight off It's an explanation as to why things change around all the time, and it Mm -hmm. kind of anchors the player and helps to set some expectations.
0: And then I think that's exactly what it did for me. It was, you know, one, contextualizing, two, giving you a reason for why you're trying to do these things, Um, you know, three, the town aspect, you know, it it tied that in very nicely, Um, but then... Um, You mentioned before when we were talking about um, sort of the genre mashup and sort of being your own marketer. Um, Obviously, this is the first game uh, that you've released on Steam, uh, given the last one was back in 2011 on Xbox Mm -hmm. Live. Um, That one didn't make it to Steam, sadly, although I think it would have done just great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, obviously Steam's like an entire, like you could probably write a dissertation on Steam, and I'm sure somebody has. but Talk about like what that was like, like having a, you know, braving sort of the gaming marketplace in the 2020s compared to that of a very walled off ecosystem back in the early 10s.
1: I will say it's a lot tougher out there uh, these days than it was before. I mean, I don't mind sharing my numbers right now. Um, This game has been out for... it's been out for let's call it two months right now and it's probably made about two thousand dollars um and that's with me you know reaching out to streamers and press and trying to look for a way you know hey we're doing a podcast right now
0: um but (laughs) compared
1: to back then uh dwarven depths on the it was a kind of walled garden on the xbox 360 they were trying to catch up with apple on the iphone because the app store was the new hotness back then
0: um well wild to think that
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's crazy but it was true once upon a time uh but when i released this game i think by this point i'd probably made five thousand dollars with ten percent of the effort that i put in right now so yeah and i think moon drops a better game than dwarven depth is you know both games are fun in their own way but um At least in terms of production values and time spent on the game, Moondrop far outweighs what I've put into
0: Dwarven Depths. Um, I mean, there's just a lot more market saturation now, right? Like, there's just...
1: I think we're looking at maybe three or four dozen new games released on Steam every day.
0: It's wild. And there's all kinds of great resources for discoverability. Um, There's a great newsletter.
1: Is it Games Discovery Newsletter?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, at any rate, I'll link that. It's a fascinating article just about like the the various gaming ecosystems and how discoverability works and how games like get their names out and become successful. Um, but I'm sure, um, you know, you've lived this, so you you probably have better anecdotes than me. Um, you know, you you chose early access on Steam for this. Obviously, it's a, a busy and crowded marketplace, but it also provides a greatest level of opportunity, right?
1: I very much appreciate. Valve and Steam and the discoverability that they offer Um, like Brian you know me I'm not a fan of a lot of the tech giants out there uh, for (laughs) many many different reasons but I think Steam might be one of the largest companies where I'm like these guys are great Um, like they're go ahead
0: I was going to say they've had their missteps over the years but by and large I think they make really good decisions and um, you know I'm a I'm a pretty avid Valve-Steam person myself. You know, I I am an early owner of a Steam deck. I like it a lot. It's a very cool device with a lot of really interesting tech going on. Uh, So if that is an indicator about, like, my involvement with this this company and ecosystem as a consumer, um, I'll just let it stand there. But, uh, yeah, you probably have a better thing to say about it with regards to this game.
1: They do a lot of uh, personalization of the Steam library and the front page um and they help out a lot of indie developers and niche developers in doing so like um when you pull up steam and you have that front page showing hey these are the games we recommend for you uh these are the discovery queue this is the you know this uh all the sales they do these are fantastic resources like um there are gamers out there that Steam has decided to put Moondrop on the front page, like top and center, this is the game we think you would like to buy next. Uh, How about that? Which this game has, you know, this has sold $2,000 worth of uh, units over the last two months. That's It's not a heavy hitter by any means. Um, but there are people where Steam's like, this is the game we think you would like the most. <laughs> That's so it's great. not like it's not like Spotify out there where all the revenue is going to the largest labels or anything. Steam cultivates an, an extensive long tail lineup and it pays off because they are able to kind of they personalize games very well to you, to the target audience. Um and they are able to like, it's not like you can buy advertising on Steam either, which is another key thing too. It's not like um I had the opportunity to show my game on the front page to X number of people if I paid this amount of money. It was just, they thought it was the best game, or one of the top five best games to show someone. A very particular someone, perhaps, but someone. Um, So I am very much a fan of all the different programs and experiments that Steam does.
0: I mean, I I think, um, we could probably draw an analogy to podcast discoverability. Like, I don't think a ton of people come and listen to this podcast, but the people that do, um, are clearly looking for a very specific thing. And it seems to find the people that that like it, you know, we get a lot of people, um, well, we get some people, <laughs> we get, we get people telling us uh, about the things they enjoy and it, it always lines up with like the missions that we, uh, or I like to think that we have with the, the podcast itself. So you know, being a creator and having a platform or service or something that allows uh, people to be directed to your work is always nice, right? It's nice to be recognized. And um, it sounds to me like Steam has done that uh, for you in an early access. Uh, Obviously, it's always better if you get more recognition. But hey, (laughs) time will tell. We're still in early access, right? (laughs) That's right.
1: That's right. It's been doing good word of mouth. Like, um, I've been proud of the progress I've seen so far. You know, people talking to me, giving me feedback on the game. Like, I'm not a known developer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I'm very happy you're Known to me, it is. <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 you're known to me. <laughs> Gosh, we've been
1: podcasting for six years now and uh, hanging out for more than that. I hope so.
0: <laughs> we've been book clubbing for six years. We've book only been clubbing, podcasting yeah. for like three or so, three or four. Mm-hmm. or Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I want to talk a bit about, a bit more, I know we've already hit a few topics in this space, but the progression over time and sort of how the game has uh, come into being and and the various things that have built over top of each other. So, you know, tell me a bit about about the game from a progression perspective, the journey from prototype to the place it's at now.
1: It's been really interesting. Like, um, you have ideas for what the game could be and then you put them out in front of other people and you see, oh, this idea is well received. This one's not so important right here. And that kind of informs where you're going to. But I think one of the things you don't realize when you play a completed game is where that game has been before. Um, I know in Moondrop there's there's like perks you can get that are kind of leftovers from ideas I used to have uh about where the game was going to be going and like this perk would be awesome in that situation but things have changed uh so that you have to um you have to reevaluate whether that idea is still still good enough to be included in the game and there's tons of ideas I've culled from the game and I've taken out but There's also ideas that I have... I'm like, oh, you know, this is still pretty good over here, even though it doesn't make as much sense anymore. And I think it's given me an appreciation for other games where you see... You know, you see a game and it's like, oh, this is a mediocre choice right here. But it gives you an appreciation for, like... It might be a mediocre choice right now, but maybe it wasn't when it was added. Maybe this was, like, another path they didn't quite go down. Um, and this would have been great over here. But I think especially maybe when you have a professional game and a professional team, multiple people, paying salaries, all that stuff, um, they probably are better about culling and getting that whole design as a, um, as a complete thing in towards the game. But I think especially when you have solo developers, um, you can get to the point where you see something in the game and it's something that you, it's like, it's like this archeological layer, uh, a fossil of a game design that doesn't exist anymore, but it was not bad enough to take out, but not, uh, you know, it doesn't quite. It's not,
0: it's not refined yet. It's not in its perfect form.
1: Yeah, yeah. And with games and with prototypes, they change directions so often. Um, I mean, I could think about three or four major turning points for Moondrop, um, which changed everything and revolved major system rewrites. Some things get cold afterwards and some things, they're still good enough to keep in.
0: Yeah, they're ambling along, and I think this is really interesting. Like the thing that this brings to mind for me—an uh, obvious comparison to Moondrop uh, and Moonroof Studios—is from Soft, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Souls-like and Dark Souls and Sekiro series. Uh, it's not an obvious comparison at all. If you catch that? You heard but, it here um, first. Moondrop, <laughs> the
1: Souls-like.
0: no just like elden ring two of the biggest games of the year in my book um (laughs) but um but seriously um i think me as a avid from softer since the the dark souls all the way through um releases of today so i guess you could call me a johnny come lately um i see a lot in elden ring that were expansions on things that were sort of left as half finished ideas in earlier from soft games be that uh, one of the, the souls games or Sekiro or uh, bloodborne or something like that and um to your point Josh i mean some of these things just need time to bake and maybe it's not this game's time that like say a certain system sees its time in the sun but you're getting the iterations you're getting the reps in on developing that and one day um, you know, that that system that you've sort of built the stub of in an initial um, game uh, in an earlier generation becomes, like, the feature of a future project or something like that. And I think you could see that in a lot of different um, series and franchises from uh, different developers if you're looking for it. But um, me, as sort of an avid Souls fan, that's the first thing that comes to mind for me.
1: Now I believe it. Uh, There's a lot of choices you have to make as a game designer. Uh, and, you know, every choice you make, every door you close, every door you open, it's the same thing. You know, uh, you go down one path, you don't go down another. And mm-hmm. that just because you choose not to go down a path with one game doesn't mean it's a bad idea or not worthwhile. It just perhaps means... It's not the right time for it.
0: Exactly. Yep. Uh, so look forward to that uh, Elden Ring podcast uh, later this year or maybe early next year. We'll see. Uh, now that we're going to uh, start to draw our discussion of uh, Moondrop and our developer with esteemed Moonroof Studios primary, Josh Galecki, to a close, um, we will finish it off with a three word review. Obviously, this is going to be a bit different uh, from a (laughs) three-word review perspective, since we have, uh, you know, the developer giving a three-word review of his own game, or maybe the process of making said game. Uh, I will be giving a three-word review of the game as well, Um, but obviously I'm I'm a bit of an insider here, so maybe a slightly different than normal three-word review. That being said, my three-word review is Magical Mountain Journey. You might think with those three words that I'm going to talk about the gameplay, which is fun, well-integrated, and rewarding or the style and aesthetic, which are simultaneously cozy and vibrant. Or you might even think that I'm just being kind for a good old friend, which Josh is. But you'd be wrong. I don't need to be kind to Josh. (laughs) The magical mountain journey I'm referring to is the journey I watched Josh take and periodically joined him on the trail for, the journey of creating Moondrop. Watching the game's mechanics evolve from concept to completion was fascinating. The art from blocks and placeholders to expressive pixel art, an extreme eye-opener. And overall, I think Moondrop is something to be very proud of. We all have our day jobs and our parents besides, but making time for ourselves and our hobbies or side gigs on the journey of life is not easy, but it's always rewarding. And I hope Josh continues this journey, whether it's with Moondrop or his next creation.
1: Alright, my three-word review for this is Living the Dream. Video games have been a passion of mine since I was a kid and I dreamed of one day being able to make my own. That dream led me to a computer science degree, but a combination of rejected job applications and hearing the stories of the horrors of crunch time diminished my desire to join the industry. Instead, I branched out on my own into the wonderful world of indie games. I've worked developing a number of skills, like music composition and pixel art to make sure my games could be polished enough while working as a solo dev. I am very proud of Moondrop. It's a fun game, which is no easy task. It's an original idea, which is certainly not easy either. Uh, I'm even more proud though, that I am living out that childhood dream of mine. Here I am 35 now and still making games. It's fantastic would not give it up for anything.
0: Honestly, like congratulations, man, on the launch and and getting through the journey and doing it all while having your first kid while getting <laughs> married. You know, I think during the development of this game, you've gotten married and had a kid. So, like <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's been busy. That's, it's been busy. Yeah, that's awesome stuff, man. And you know, you know, I've I've always been proud of of you for for doing this and um obviously it's contributed a ton to um, you know, our Uh, joint interest in games and um yeah long live indie gaming
1: (laughs) long live the solo dev the bedroom coder
0: long live moonroof studios
1: (laughs) (laughs) cheers to that
0: all right and with that we want to say thanks for listening and if you enjoyed this podcast then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod.
1: And if you are interested in trying out Moondrop, we have a link to the Steam page on the show notes on the website and a link to the free web demo that you can play on itch.io.
0: And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on creating. One thing we didn't mention though is the music god damn it the one time I didn't bring up the music it's Josh's very own handwritten soundtrack which by the way I'm going to be asking you to gift me for free uh, so I can produce this episode <laughs>
1: that's fair enough you know Brian I've listened to that soundtrack so much I don't even notice it anymore it's my own stuff
0: <laughs> oh so it's no different than literally any other game you've ever played
1: um, <laughs> well, the difference is I can bust this out on the guitar anytime I wanted to.
0: Whoa. Well, that's uh, that's a pretty uh, tall feat. I guess uh, I can't necessarily play my own game soundtrack, but that's just because I don't have a game, honestly. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really do enjoy the, the very calming classical guitar, sort of down-home feel of the, the soundtrack, and... Um, It's something that I I do have stuck in my head from time to time, so good job. You created an earworm.
1: Thank you. Appreciate that.
0: You haven't done that since scrap metal back in uh, our (laughs) high school ska band.
1: I'll be sad if you don't cut to that.
0: Oh my god, if I can find the MP3, you better believe I will. Oh, I can find it. I've got it still. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Um, Here uh, for the final outro of our podcast, you will hear Josh and I's high school ska band.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I can't fail to mention here is the inspiration my wife was for working on this game. Um, The initial idea for this was Mashing up the you know uh, farm sim in a rogue like sort of container, um, but the reason I chose farm sim was because Juliana had gotten super into Stardew Valley at the time, and I was hoping to kind of like you know create something that we could uh, we could kind of do together and do some great design work on and everything and. That's gone fantastic. Um, She's actually the kind of basis for the main character in the game,
0: up to and
1: including (laughs) the uh, dance moves that you do every time you (laughs) water a plant. Um, So shout out to my wife. I love her.
0: I mean just a nice looking vibe Don't you know not
1: everything revolves around you find you rage at a simple mistake And you just let your bang
0: it close as you can not let it go Why has disaster found you? Why makes you think that you're so special? There's a whole world of people just as mad as you let you